0: Jesus is the living water who gives the gift of eternal life and forever satisfies our thirsty souls. You're listening to Wonder Lake Bible Church, building mature followers of Jesus Christ. Find us online at wlbiblechurch.org. Now, here's Pastor Dan Cox with today's message. Recently, there was a successful television advertising campaign it ran for about 12 years, and it featured a character called The Most Interesting Man in the World. You remember those commercials there? And each commercial then would speak of him performing some outrageous or unlikely feat in the past. And then we would cut back to him in the present then, where he would say that he does not always drink beer, but when he does, he prefers Dos Equis. And then he would say this Stay thirsty, my friends. You remember that? Remember that series there? Well, I'm not here today to encourage you to drink beer, but I was earlier this week speaking with someone here in the church, and somehow the topic of the most interesting man in the world commercials came up. And then I was struck by an idea. You know, the most interesting man in the world made for some amusing commercials, but I want us to think about the man who is truly the most interesting man in the world, and for that matter, we might say he is the most glorious man in the world, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the God-man, he is the Son of God, and the perfect man, the Savior of the world, And he didn't come to sell a product. He didn't come to sell beer. He came to give us something much better than beer. He came to give us living water. And he said that when we drink that living water, you will never thirst, my friends. You will never thirst. That when we drink that water, that is sufficient for us, for salvation, for eternal life. And we'll never need to seek another source for that anywhere. We will never thirst again. Well, we're continuing here then in our series, Unique, the Life, Death, and Resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a harmony of the Gospels, and we are following an order suggested by John MacArthur in this book, One Perfect Life. For today, then, we're looking at this topic, then, of living water, living water. And we will be drawing from the Gospel of John, Gospel of John, chapter 7, verses 11 through 52. That's John seven eleven through 52. And here is the key idea that I want us to take away from our message. That is that Jesus is the living water who gives the gift of eternal life, And forever satisfies our thirsty souls. He is the living water. He gives that gift of water, which is eternal life. And once we drink that, we never need to drink again of that. It forever satisfies our thirsty souls for salvation then. Before we look at our text then, a little context here. Jesus has come to Jerusalem to attend the Feast of Tabernacles And the feast commemorated Israel's years of living in the wilderness before entering the promised land. It was a seven-day feast, and all Jewish men were required to attend it. And the people would construct little dwelling structures or tents called tabernacles or booths. And they were made from tree branches and they were similar then to what the Israelites lived in while they were living in the desert in the wilderness before going into the promised land. And there were two significant elements that were involved in the feast that involved water and light, water and light. And Jesus then, he would draw on those themes to declare that he is the living water and he is the light of the world today we're going to see jesus as the living water now jesus was a controversial figure it was true back then it's true today still isn't it he is still a controversial figure and all manner of people have all manner of opinions about him about who he was and the significance of what he said. And should we believe him or not? Is he to be received or rejected? Now, there were some who heard him and they believed in him. They believed in him as the Messiah. There were others who weren't sure. And we said, well, you know, I, I just don't know quite what to make of him. But then there were others then who didn't believe. They rejected him. And some then who even went so far to reject him with hostile unbelief and they violently opposed him. And the religious leadership of the nation violently opposed him and were even seeking to kill him because they saw him as a threat to them, to their power and to their nation then. So with that in mind then, let's take a look at the Gospel of John chapter seven starting in verse 11, we're told, Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, He is good. And others said, No, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews." So you see first here some mixed opinions about him. We're told here that the Jews sought him at the feast. Now you might, when we just read that, you might be a little confused for a minute. You say, wait a minute, the Jews sought him. Weren't they all Jewish? It was a Jewish feast. There were people from all over the land there and even all over the... the roman empire who were jewish who had come then to the feast here jesus himself was jewish what do you mean the jews were seeking him well sometimes when we see that in scripture when it says the jews it doesn't mean the jewish people It's referring to the Jewish religious leadership, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the chief priests, the elders. That's who's being referred to there when we see that there. So the Jewish religious leadership, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're looking for him. They're saying, where is he? Because, hey, if he is Messiah, he should be here and he should be publicly proclaiming himself as Messiah. Where is he? We don't see him. Now remember, last time we saw that Jesus' brothers, who didn't believe in him at that point, were saying, come on, why you should go to the feast. And Jesus said, I'm not going now. But he meant what? He was not going in the way that they wanted to, to go publicly, presenting himself as Messiah. Why? Because the time had not yet come. But he had every intention of going to the feast, but not publicly to present himself as Messiah, but to go there and to worship and to teach them. So he has arrived here then, but he has not formally presented himself in the way that he would not too long from now when he would formally present himself at the triumphal entry before the crucifixion then. So here were folks then who were looking for him. Where is he? Now when we say these religious leaders who opposed him, that does not mean every single one of them. There were some of them who were open to them and one of them, in fact, was Nicodemus, who we're going to hear from in just a little bit here. He was open to Jesus, but most of them, though, violently opposed him. So where is he? Well, he wasn't presenting himself the way they thought he should because the time for that had not yet come. It says there was much complaining among the people about him. Some saying he is good, Yeah, you know what he says is good. We should listen to him. And others are saying, no, he's deceiving. He's a liar. He's presenting himself to be so, he's no Messiah. He's a liar. He's deceiving the people. But others, though, were even afraid to speak for fear of that religious leadership because they knew that they were seeking to kill him and they didn't want to speak of him then. So we'll go on, it says, now, About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? And Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law and yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? And the people answered and said, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath, If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So here we see true doctrine, right doctrine, right teaching. Jesus went up into the temple and he taught. This is something that was a common practice. Jesus was a rabbi, a teacher. And one would go up into the synagogue, or in this case in Jerusalem, into the temple, in the courts there, and he would sit down and preach. And people would listen and hear then as he preached and taught there. But here then, here's the religious leaders then who are monitoring him very carefully. And they're listening to what he is saying. And they're amazed by him amazed by how he handles the scripture how he is teaching it and explaining that to them and they're saying how can he do this he's he's never studied now let me ask you had had do you think jesus had studied the 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 uh the law of god did he know the scriptures certainly he did yeah he he knew a little bit about it first of all he's the author right yeah through the holy spirit right so he knows the scriptures pretty well right to begin with But also when they say what he's never studied, how can he speak like this? They meant what he's not been to any of our schools, you know, our former formal rabbinical schools. He hasn't attended any of those. He's what he's a carpenter from Nazareth, but how's he speaking like this? In our day, we might say someone might get up and, you know, they've never been to Bible college, they've never been to seminary. Well, let me ask you, do you, have to be, do you have to go to Bible college or seminary to know the Word of God well and to speak it and proclaim it well? No, you don't. And in fact, you can go to Bible college and seminary and get really messed up and not speak it and proclaim it very well, Right. So that's neither here nor there with that. But he's saying, what? He has never been to any of our schools. How can he how can he know the scripture? How can he speak with such authority like this? Hmm. Well, I think we know how he can, because he he is the living word, right? He knows it. But then Jesus says something interesting. He says, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. He's saying what? I'm not just speaking out of my own authority or accord here. I am speaking what God the Father has given to me to teach to you. And then he says, if anyone wills to do the Father's will, that person will know whether Jesus' doctrine comes from God or not. Interesting meaning what? If you... Again, they were already opposed to him. They already hated him. And now we see like in this conversation some of the reasons why they hated him. Because here he is. Here's this carpenter from Nazareth. But we have to admit, he's done some pretty amazing things. And he's saying some things here that like, wow, that's impressive how he's teaching with that. But of course, he, he's not the Messiah. So what are we gonna do here with him? And he says, if you truly will to do, my father's will. If you would truly will that, then you would know what I'm saying is true. But when someone, uh, just because someone hears the word of God, and it may make perfect sense in their minds, but if it's not combined with their heart and with faith, it's not going to register with them, right? So he's saying, "What well, you're not hearing this, and you are rejecting this, and you are rejecting me because you not want to. You do not want to do the father's will." Now, how do you think that sounded to them? You don't want to do the Father's will. You don't want to obey God. And that's why you won't hear me and you do not hear this. You think that might have stung them a little bit? I'm sure it did. Because he says, whoever wills to do my Father's will, you will know whether this teaching is true or not, whether I am true or not. It says, the one who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he, Jesus, he seeks the glory of God. And in him, God is true. There's nothing untrue in it. So he is preaching true doctrine because it's coming from the true God, who is true. And there is no unrighteousness in him. And Jesus also would make a claim for himself that there is no unrighteousness in him, and he, Jesus, that's a pretty bold claim, don't you think? Can any of us claim to have no unrighteousness in us? No. Well, it would be a pretty bold claim if Jesus was just like any other man. But he was not like any other man, was he? He was the perfectly righteous God-man in whom there was no unrighteousness at all. And his doctrine, his teaching is true because he speaks the doctrine of God the Father and he is true. And there is no unrighteousness in him. Then Jesus says, as if they, weren't, they were already stinging a little bit from that, because Jesus said that Moses gave them the law, yet none of them keeps it. He's talking to Pharisees. What were the Pharisees very proud of? That they kept the law, right? And he says, Moses gave you the law, and you don't keep it. Mm. Would you have been offended if you were one of them? Oh, yeah, come on, we're the best at keeping the law. What are you talking about? In fact, they were very proud of themselves for how they kept the law, or at least they thought they kept the law. They didn't. Why? Sure, they may have conformed themselves in some ways externally to the law, Even then, they didn't perfectly keep the law, right? But they gave an appearance of keeping the law. But inside, what? They were full of wickedness and hypocrisy. And Jesus knew that. So yeah, you may have the appearance of keeping the law, but inside your heart, their hearts were wicked. And Jesus called them out on that. It's like in our day, can someone... Have an, can you go to church and look righteous and upright and upstanding in many ways, but actually be living a totally different life inside, in your heart, in your head? Absolutely. And that's what they were doing. And Jesus calls them out on that. And so he says to them, why do you seek to kill me? Now, isn't this interesting? Were they seeking to kill him? Absolutely, they were. They knew it, and he knew it. But he says, why do you seek to kill me? And they say, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Right? Uh Uh-huh. Hold that thought. We're going to come back to that in a moment here. So Jesus knew full well what they wanted to do. Now, granted, probably some of them, some of the people listening didn't realize that they were seeking to kill him. But others did, and that's going to be clear in a moment. But when they're confronted with it they play all innocent and oh wow what are you talking about right and jesus said he did one work and they all marveled well jesus had done many works right but a lot of that that ministry was in galilee so what is he saying he's in jerusalem here now and he says i did one work and you all marveled he's probably referring to there an earlier visit to Jerusalem when he did that work of healing a man at the pool, the pool of Bethesda, the paralytic man, when he healed him and the man was able to get up and walk there. That is what he's referring to there, most likely there. And it was an amazing thing that they saw. And they all marveled at that, but he did it on the Sabbath. At this point, Steve says, Dun-dun-dun, right? (laughs) Right? He did it on the Sabbath. Well, that's quite an amazing miracle there, Jesus. Uh, Very impressive, but you do know it's the Sabbath, right? You can't be working on the Sabbath. That's work. That's a work to do that, to heal. Huh. So Jesus then points out something to him. He says, "Uh, well, you know... You perform circumcisions on the Sabbath. Why? Because the the law required that baby boys be circumcised on the eighth day after their birth. So if that eighth day happened to fall on a Sabbath, well, they would do that. And so Jesus says, well, you do that because that is a good thing to do on the Sabbath. But now you want to criticize me for making a man completely well on the Sabbath. And then he says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. You know, there's some folks who always like to say, isn't it interesting, we got folks who, who uh, have maybe read uh, a, a verse or two from scripture in their entire life, but then they want to tell us, they want to tell the church what Jesus said and what Jesus uh, taught, right? And they said, well, Jesus said, don't judge, did Jesus say, "Don't judge?" Well, he did in a particular context, right? When Jesus said, "Do not judge," he was talking about what? Don't be filled up with self-righteousness and hypocrisy and have a, you know, a harsh condemning legalistic attitude that presumes you know to look down upon others while meanwhile your own heart is far from god and that's what jesus when he said don't judge he said don't be like don't be like the pharisees who that's how they judge to judge means simply what to make a moral call a distinction make a moral moral judgment call if you will to say this is right this is wrong this is good this is evil that's what it means to judge And so Jesus didn't say, don't make moral distinctions. Don't call something good, good, and something evil, evil. No, he was saying what? Don't be full of self-righteousness and hypocrisy when you're calling out somebody else, when you've got work to do in your own heart. That's what he was saying. Because he also elsewhere, including right here then, he says, do judge. Do make moral distinctions. Do call right, right, and wrong, wrong, but... Do it righteously, but judge with righteous judgment. So we are called then to exercise proper moral and theological discernment. Judge with righteous judgment. So they were judging him and judging all kinds of people, but they, were do, they weren't judging righteously. They were judging unrighteously. They're just looking at appearances and not getting to the truth of the situation, judging unrighteously. And I find what the text says next amusing. See if you do as well. Now, some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not he whom they, are, whom they seek to kill? But look, He speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, "'whom you do not know. "'But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. "'Therefore they sought to take him, "'but no one laid a hand on him, "'because his hour had not yet come. "'And many of the people believed in him, "'and said, When the Christ comes, "'will he do more signs than these which this man has done?' And the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go? that we shall not find him. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, you will seek me and not find me and where I am? You cannot come. Here we see belief and hostile unbelief. Remember I said I found that line amusing. It says, now some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not he whom they seek to kill? Why is that funny? Because just shortly before then, he had, Jesus said to them, why do you seek to kill me? And what do they say? What? What are you talking about? You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? And then just a moment later here, some of the people, it was common knowledge and the people are saying, hey, isn't that the one they're seeking to kill? Right? Isn't that funny? Am I, does anybody think that's funny? Right? So the people knew and yet here they are saying, what, what? What are you talking about? Wow, who's seeking to kill you? Even though the people knew. Right, So they're saying, hey, this is the one they're seeking to kill, but look at him. He's speaking so boldly to them, openly, and beginning to wonder, do they think maybe he is the Christ? Why aren't they grabbing him up? Of course, we know why they haven't grabbed him up. Why haven't they grabbed him up or been successful in it? Because it was not his time, Right? But then they say, but but we know where he we know where Jesus is from. He's from Nazareth, he's from Galilee. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Now the the scriptures prophesied, of course, that Messiah would be born in where? In Bethlehem, right? And the people knew that. Some people might not, but the people knew that. But here I think what's happening is, is the people were referring to a tradition that had arisen that when messiah came appeared to the nation that he would appear suddenly and that his identity would remain unknown until he appeared suddenly and accomplished israel's redemption so yes they knew he would be he well he used to be born in bethlehem but after that we don't know anything he's just all of a sudden he's just going to appear on the scene and no one's going to know where he's from or anything about him right that was their tradition it wasn't scriptural, but that was their tradition. But Jesus, well, we, we know him. We know where he's from. He didn't just appear suddenly and, 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 and have this, this mystery about his background. We know he's the carpenter's son from Nazareth. We know all about him. So he can't possibly be the Messiah. But, of course, they were following their tradition and not the scripture. Right? So Jesus cried out and he said, you know me. You both know me and you know where I am from. But I haven't come of myself. He who sent me is true, whom you do not know. Once again, saying what? You've, you don't know God. You think you do, but you don't know. Because God sent me and you don't know him. But I do know God. In fact, I am from him and he sent me. So they knew him, where he was from, that he had been sent from them, for actually from above, from God the Father. And they did not know God. Those were fighting words, right? You're telling the religious leaders and rulers that we don't know God, and we don't know what we're talking about? Fighting words, right? And so what do you see? Therefore they sought to take him. But no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. That day would come, but not today. Many of the people believed in him. And they're wondering, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? So they're asking, like, what more does he have to do? Think about that. How many more miracles does he need to perform before they would believe? What else does he need to do for them to believe? And the truth is, it wouldn't matter how many more miracles he did. They weren't going to believe. Why? Because their hearts were cold and unbelieving, right? So, yeah, he's done plenty, but how much more? Others then were murmuring, What's this about him saying, I will be with you a little while longer and then go to him who sent me? It says, you will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. What's he referring to? He's going to die and he's going to return to heaven. They're going to look for him, but you can't come. You can't come to heaven and find me there. But of course, they didn't understand that, that that's what he was saying. Feast of, water, of Tabernacles said one of the traditions which had developed was a water ceremony. So, in, in setting the backdrop for what Jesus says about living water, I think it's helpful for us to understand what was going on at the at the feast. Then that Jesus then speaks to that about himself. Then we're told this that a tradition grew up in the few centuries before Jesus that on the seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles, a golden vessel containing water from the Pool of Siloam was transported in a priestly procession back to the temple. And as it came to the water gate, three trumpet blasts sounded to mark the joy of the occasion, and the people recited Isaiah 12.3, which says, "'With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation.'" At the temple, as the people watched, the priests would march around the altar carrying the water container while the temple choir sang the Hallel, which is Psalms 113 through 118. The water was then offered as a sacrifice to God. So the wells, the waters is the well of salvation, the water being sacrificed on the altar of God. So the use of the water symbolized the blessing of God upon the people and Jesus used this event then as an object lesson, a very public invitation on the last day of the feast for people to accept him as that living water, as that sacrifice, as that well of salvation then. So here we're told then, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood out and cried saying, if anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. You might find it actually just a moment ago. I had to quickly turn off the mic for a second because I coughed. I don't know if you caught that. that. You know why? Because I had to cough. Because I thirst and I need water. Thank you, Tony, for the water here. Right? Maybe God was trying to tell me something through that. I don't know. but. But he says what? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The living water says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Boy, this, is, this really hits the spot sometimes, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. This is a, 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 a wonderful picture of the gospel invitation. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If anyone thirsts, it's a recognition of the soul's need. See, just a moment ago, I had a physical need. Of thirst, (laughs) right? And that satisfied it, but only temporarily. I'm going to be thirsty again for this kind of water, aren't I? So, recognizing the soul's need, let him come to me that has approached the source of the provision needed and then drink, receive what is needed. I had a physical need. Here was the physical answer, and there was the provision for that. But you know what? I'm going to be thirsty again with this kind of water. But when you come to Jesus when it's a thirst of the soul and what the souls need, soul needs, salvation in Him, eternal life, when you come to Him, when you drink of that, you're not going to need to keep drinking to keep getting eternal life, are you? You'll never thirst again. One sip, all right? So Jesus is the living water that gives eternal life to sinful people, to all who come to him and drink of him, faith in him. So just as a thirsty body is satisfied by physical water, Jesus satisfi- satisfies the thirsty soul with spiritual water of redemption. But unlike physical water, you don't need to keep drinking the salvation water. Now we need to keep drinking the water of God's word, I know that, but we don't need to keep being saved, do we? We come to Him and receive that. But there's another sense though, too, of this water in which Jesus is speaking here, in which the Holy Spirit is being presented as this water. Because who brings who brings the gift of salvation to to the sinner? It's a work of the Holy Spirit, right? The Spirit is the source of spiritual and eternal life. And the Spirit does this by regenerating the spiritually dead person and producing new life in them. But the Spirit would not come until after Jesus' resurrection and ascension to heaven, and that they did not yet understand. So therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, truly, this is the prophet, Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? Ignorant, weren't they? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why have you not brought him? And the officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. And then the Pharisees answered him, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? Yes, some of them. But but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus He who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? And they answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Mixed responses. Once again, we see mixed responses to Jesus. Some were saying, What? This is it. He is the prophet, he is the Messiah. And others were saying, will the Christ come out of Galilee? The Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem. What are they showing? They're showing their ignorance about him. Was Jesus of the seed of David? Yes. Was, he, was he born in Bethlehem? Yes. Did he come from Galilee? Yes. But was he born in Galilee? No. He was born just as the scripture said Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So this shows the ignorance of some who did not realize that Jesus was, in fact, of the seed of David, born in the town of Bethlehem. So then the officers and the chief priests, they sent these officers to arrest him. And they don't come back and say, what's the matter? We're supposed to go arrest him and bring him back. And he says, no one speaks like him. They went to arrest him, and they just couldn't do it. And Of course, you know, it was sovereignly. It was not the time anyway, but they just... They couldn't bring themselves to do that because they were amazed by him. And so, what do they receive then? They're insulted. What? Are you from Galilee too? See, that was an insult. It was ge- a geographical snobbery, if you will. Right? Wonder Tucky, right? Yeah. What? Are you from Wonder tucky too? Right? You're from Galilee too? So they said, well, what are you? You must be deceived then, too. But Nicodemus, not all the Pharisees rejected Jesus. And we see this one here, such Pharisee Nicodemus. We first see him in John chapter 3, right? Where Jesus tells him, you must be born again. And so he speaks up here, and he, he is cautioning against hasty judgment here. But his fellow Pharisees revile him. They say, what, no prophet has arisen out of Galilee? Well, they were wrong on two accounts. First of all, had they bothered to check, they would find out that Jesus had, in fact, been born in Bethlehem. And second, in fact, prophets had come out of Galilee. You might know one of them named Jonah. right? But again, it was their geographical snobbery speaking there. Right? So What? Remind us that Jesus is the living water who gives the gift of eternal life and forever satisfies our thirsty souls at need for redemption, of right standing with God and the blessing of eternal life. So I ask you, are you thirsty, my friend? Jesus gives that gift. We come to him in faith. We turn away from self self-righteousness, self-reliance, and sin. And we put our trust, our faith, our confidence in Jesus Christ. And when we do that, he gives us the gift of salvation. Through his perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his resurrection from the grave, we're united with him in that victory, given the gift of forgiveness, eternal life, and the hope of the resurrection. That's all a gift received by faith. And once you come to Him and drink that water, you'll never be thirsty for salvation again. But elsewhere in Scripture, Jesus speaks of a different kind of thirst that I'd like to challenge us with too in closing here. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Jesus speaking of the Beatitudes here, those who are blessed, he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. For righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In another sense, when we come to him for salvation, we'll never thirst again. You don't need to look somewhere else for salvation. But in another sense, our souls, we should be continuously thirsty, shouldn't they? They should be thirsty for righteousness, thirsty for wanting to be more like Christ. I hope I stay thirsty for the rest of my life, for righteousness, right? So if you're thirsty for salvation, come to Jesus and you'll never thirst again. But if you have come to Christ, I would pray that you would stay thirsty, my friend. Stay thirsty for righteousness. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ who is the living water. Thank you that we don't need to look somewhere else. And we don't need to keep coming back to him for salvation, but that he gives us this gift by faith and we will never thirst again. But I do pray though, Lord, for those among us who perhaps have not come to Christ to receive that gift. I pray that your spirit would work and move in their hearts and their minds. That you cause them to come alive and to receive this gift by faith. And God, for those who have received that gift, I pray that our souls would remain would remain ever thirsty for righteousness. For we know that you promised too to satisfy that. That you would satisfy us in your word. Thank you, Lord, for the hope and the gift we have in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more information about Wonder Lake Bible Church, visit wlbiblechurch.org.